Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Guess it's been a while. Happy Gaming is a podcast dedicated to finding optimism as well as passionately and articulately exploring our love and respect for the medium without resorting to cynicism. If you enjoy this podcast and it's brought you some positive thinking, consider sharing with your friends and subscribing to the Happy Gaming Patreon at www.patreon.com happygaming, where you can show your support and become a patron for as little as $1 a month to help the show grow. Hope you enjoy the show and happy gaming. Hello there, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Happy Gaming. I know it's been quite a while since the last episode, so let's start out with what I promised to talk about at the conclusion of the last episode here. So I believe at the end of the last episode, we promised to talk about PlayStation VR. And so let's get right into that. It's been a while since I've actually picked up the VR. Um, it's a really cool thing to pick up and play, and it's really hard to talk about. Maybe that's something that... Uh, gave me a little bit of anxiety going into talking about it is it's something I hate when people do this I hate when I read articles and they're like hey VR you know it's you got to do it it's really cool but you got to experience it I can't tell you about it you, you just got to do it for yourself and it's really one of those things because here's how it works you got like you got this thing that you put on your head it's got a projector that's pointing at both of your eyes so you are seeing an image in 3D, and it's tracking your head movement, it's tracking all these cool things, uh, and your body. Uh, with the PlayStation Move, or the PlayStation VR, the way that this works is you have a wand in both hands. You got like a, this little magic wand looking thing that you hold in one hand, you hold in the other hand, and then uh, it tracks your head and your arms, and you can look around in a 3D space, and you can you know, touch and grab things and pick things up and do that sort of thing. I picked up a few games with it. I got a few games with the bundle that I picked up on eBay. Um, so I got this Rocky game where, you know, you're, you're boxing, you're in like a gym and you're you're beating guys up. And that's pretty cool. That's a pretty cool thing that you can do. I, I got a couple of VR demos where, you know, you're just looking around. There's the Spider-Man one where you're like shooting some webs. That's pretty cool. Super hot VR is way fun. Uh, that's a game within a game where you're, you're this person who is in a VR thing in that game and you uh, it's kind of like the Matrix where you're in this virtual reality system um, and the way that it works is the game only moves when you move and you have to figure out how to take everybody out with the weapons that they give you. Um, so it's kind of like a, a moving puzzle in like an action movie. So you have five guys in front of you, one guy's holding a gun. Um, and so you, uh, you look down and you have, you have like a bat. So you pick up the bat and then you hit a guy, but the bat breaks. And so you have to pick up the gun that that guy was holding and then shoot at this guy over here. Um, so it's very dynamic, but things only move when you move. So you have to figure out how to plan your moves accordingly to make this action movie work. Uh, that's very fun. Um, it also, um, brings to mind the things that VR does really well and the things that VR does not do really well. Because VR, VR is very good at allowing you to look around in a 3D space. Um, it's good at letting you touch and grab and look at things up close and move them around better than, you know, any controller can do, better than you can do on a mouse and keyboard. It has a new control scheme that is not something that you are used to and it's not something that you've used before. 
And that is something that makes this hard to describe. It's something that you have to experience to really see for yourself, because when you are wearing those goggles, when you're doing something in this environment, everything is in 3D. It's like you are in this place, and you know, the, the graphics are not excellent because they have to, it has to shoot two projectors at you, so it has to be at a certain resolution where they can have two of those projectors you know, displaying, and it has to be at a certain resolution, so it doesn't look, it doesn't look perfect, it doesn't look like crystal clear or anything like that, but you do have this, uh, you, you do have this feeling that you are in this space, and you are touching and grabbing and moving things, and that's so cool to, you know, uh, be in this environment and to look around, you can look up and you can see, like, this scale that you wouldn't be able to see otherwise. I love that. I love that you can just kind of exist in a space and just take a knee for a minute and look around. Um, something that VR does not do really well that I, uh, I also experienced is just moving a character around, moving yourself around. And they, uh, they get around this in certain ways where, uh, take for instance, you have a, you have a game called, uh, Astrobot Rescue Mission, and that's a cool VR game where you, uh, you are not the character that you're moving around. You are kind of separate. You're, um, you're looking at this character from way down, or uh, you're way up in the sky, and this this little robot is down on the ground, and so you can look around in this 3D space and you can see your controller, uh, but you're you're looking down and you are controlling this little guy, and so that's that works because that works traditionally where you are moving a, con a character with a controller that you have in your hands, but when you are trying to move yourself in a virtual reality 3D space it doesn't quite work as well. And it's it's because of that weird movement disconnect. Um, because you're either, you know, say you're holding a, re a regular controller and you're moving your ca your character. So you're in first person, you're looking through this, this person's eyes and you're moving forward, but you're sitting on a couch. And that tells your brain, hey, I'm gonna get motion sick right now. This is not right. And so you, you get this motion sickness from that. And I was not into that motion sickness because, you know, who would be? Uh, the other way that they get around this, which is what the, the Rocky game did, was, you know, think about this. You're in the gym. You're beating up on this punching bag. It's like, okay, go to the other punching bag. And then it has you, like, stand like a robot and move your arms, you know, f waggle your arms like you're, like you're walking, but you're standing in place. Yeah, that's dumb. Nobody wants to do that. <laughs> Um, that's, that's just not a, an intuitive way to, uh, control a character. And so you have this interesting thing where the controls allow for a unique and interesting way of experiencing an environment in a game that we have not had before. Um, because this is a whole new control scheme that is not something that has existed in the past. So the conclusion that I came away with, I, let me think about the other games that I played. There's a Tetris game that's really cool. Um, it's called Tetris Effect. It's, you're like in this virtual space that's really zen-like, and you have like all these flashing colors and beautiful shapes and objects, and it reacts to how well you're doing in Tetris. So as you get like points and do things, this environment involves, and you have like beautiful like space whales that come in and like flow with this music that's coming around, and it's a, a really neat thing. Uh, the thing with certain games like that is I look at it and I'm like, I, 
I love this, I don't think this needs to be in VR. You know, you can play that game without VR. I don't think that VR, virtual reality, is the next step for games, for movies, but I do think it's a really cool addition in an option that you can do. So you can, you can have a VR thing, it's not going to replace your controller. It's not going to replace sitting down with, you know, your game in the same way that I've, I figured. In the same way that, like, you know, sometimes you don't want to have a controller in your hand. Sometimes you want to sit at your desk and have a keyboard and mouse because that works better. Because that's a different way of operating a same control scheme. And that's super interesting. Just a really interesting thing. If you can try VR, it's so cool to try. Um... But right now it's expensive, it's, you know, it's not the most approachable thing right now. And so I wouldn't exactly recommend it to everybody, but it's really cool to try out. Uh, what else have we been playing here? Over the last week, I know I've pro I talked about this previously, but I platinumed Spider-Man. I got all the Spider-Man trophies, I did everything in that game, and I still love that game. That game is so, so cool. You know, because it just has this genuine love and genuine understanding of Spider-Man as a character. Because I think in the past, you had a, a portion of Spider-Man uh, where, you know, you had Spider-Man 2, I think, came out in 2002. And you have Spider-Man, you can, you can swing around the city, you can stop crimes, you can beat dudes up. And that's a portion of Spider-Man. This game has so much more where you can... Uh, you can land on a building and then you have to, you know, do science puzzles because Peter Parker has a job as a scientist and he's a smart dude and he does these things. And then that goes into the story and then you go out as Spider-Man and you stop crimes. But then you can also take pictures because Spider-Man's a photographer who worked at the Daily Bugle and that's super cool. Uh, you have all these backpacks that are everywhere who are, that have these little story tidbits of you know, who Peter Parker was and how he, he grew into this Spider-Man figure. You have a whole story surrounding uh, him going in, uh, and helping Aunt May at this, uh, at this homeless shelter where he's, you know, helping the homeless, helping the soup kitchen, because Spider-Man's a nice guy. Peter Parker's a nice guy, but he also has trouble with relationships because he's a superhero. So you have a storyline here about how he and Mary Jane are not seeing eye to eye because he's a superhero and he sees things a certain way, but he also wants to be a normal guy and have a relationship, but he can't do that at the same time and they have to have a conversation about that and that's super cool. Like, th this game has a love and a respect for Spider-Man that I, uh, I have not seen before uh, in the same way because it's just this fully fleshed out uh, three-dimensional character of Spider-Man. And that game is so, so good. It's really wonderful. So I guess the next thing would be, you know, it's been, it's been a long time. And, uh, you know, addressing the elephant in the room is, uh, is a big thing. I know that not everybody cares where they're like, oh, I'll, I'll listen to an episode when I can. I, uh, I feel personally responsible for putting episodes out and taking responsibility in that uh, because I, I love writing this show and I love doing that sort of thing. But... Uh, I've, uh, I've been having some difficulties in my life, and that's how things go sometimes, especially, you know, this episode is going to go out at a certain point in time when everybody's having a lot of difficulties, so bless you out there if you're struggling. We're all struggling right now. I hope that I can put some positive stuff out there for you right now. Um, over the last year, I've been struggling with a lot of things, 
uh, and so I, I th- wanted to write an episode about that specifically. I wanted to bring to the surface a lot of the things that I've been struggling with, the things that I have had issues with, and not just in the last year, but just overall in my life uh, that I've had to struggle with. And so I wanted to talk about a game that has helped me with that too. And so this episode is going to talk about some heavy issues, heavy things I'm not an expert on, and I don't want people to be necessarily offended. Uh, I'm not an expert on these sorts of things. So I want to put that out there in the open before I talk about anything that I'm not an expert. I'm just a person. I have opinions. I have thoughts. But I guess we can jump into that here. We're going to talk about mental health. We're going to talk about stress. We're going to talk about anxiety. We're going to talk about a lot of things here. But we're also going to talk about uh, a game that I really love. And we're going to talk about uh, how games have helped me in the past and how they continue to help me. Uh, even now, as times are difficult. So let's get into that. Today we're going to be talking about a little game called Chrono Trigger, which is one of my favorite games of all time. It's the first game I ever played. Let's get into it. I've been in a rut lately. In a previous episode, I briefly spoke about struggling with my own anxiety and depression, but lately it's put me in a funk. At times, I can feel like I'm going through all the motions, and there's a cloud around me, or an emptiness inside of me that feels imperceptibly and impenetrably vast. I imagine that this is a struggle that has its own unique attributes for anyone who has battles with their mental health. For me, it's sort of like you're on a sailboat in the middle of open, pitch-black water with no wind. There's nothing to make the sails go, no light around you, and the water is thick as tar, so you're stuck to wait until something comes along. And the amount of time between wind varies. You've got no oars, but even if you did, you feel like you've got nowhere to go. The duration of these feelings can vary. Sometimes you're stuck in the water for a week, sometimes longer, and lately, it's affected how I feel when I pick up games, when I'm playing something, and mostly when I attempt to sit down and write. Outside of my own creative ventures, the world always seems to be falling apart, not to go into any specifics or anything. Just looking at the game industry as well, the internet is full of voices, so many so that it can come to feel like a lot of noise. The internet is a mostly free marketplace of people and their thoughts and their ideas, and sometimes I look at my own work, not to judge by comparative quality, but to wonder if adding that drop of voice to the ocean of screaming tirades, toxic anonymity, and the actually very creative people and wonderful people all sitting under the same digital roof, is it even worth it? Does my voice matter? And more so, can one voice positively influence good? What authority do I have, I wonder, to put my ideas out there when there are so many more that seem to be so much more qualified, so much more skilled, articulate? Am I just respouting words and thoughts that have already been put out there by someone much more talented? And so I sit at my computer and I see the little black typing line on my white screen blink on and off as I try to put words down on a page, waiting for the black ocean to give me wind again. 
I know that this sounds like complaining, and I don't want it to come across that way. Writing the show for me has always been about trying to put objective, positive, and thoughtful ideas out into the world. But it's also been, for me, about exploring a more positive mindset for myself as someone who struggles and has consistently struggled with negative feelings. I always hope I can help someone and bring some positive feelings around in the same way that I hope to bring them in myself. At the same time, though, depression can sometimes feel like a negative and altogether counterintuitive juxtaposition. It's too easy to disregard your own depressive feelings because you know someone else also struggles and may be feeling worse, so maybe you should say nothing at all. No one brags or should brag about mental illness, but it's easy to fall into a lonely, deprecating trap because you compare your own illness to that of another. Depression is something I have encountered and faced as long as I can remember. In elementary school, I would have lapses of hopeless feelings, eventually culminating in my brain sort of shutting down and just going through the motions. And I think maybe that it's because from a very young age I questioned the validity, or rather the value, of the routine of growing up, or maybe more largely of life in general, going to school, doing homework, waiting until Friday, and keeping your head down while you do what you're told. Every day every month, it just felt pointless to me. Back then, when I had my spells of anxiety or depression, I would go into shutdown mode. It's like my brain would just shut off and I couldn't get words out to other people about what I was feeling because I felt like confronting those feelings externally could only lead to more tensions, frustrations, internal pain, and struggle. So my mechanism for coping was just to block it all out, keep quiet, and internalize all of the hopelessness. Back then, it was less of a black fog on a boat with no oars than it was like being completely engulfed in a thick, viscous, black tar that I could only hear myself in. Sometimes when there are too many external worries, frustrations, thoughts, it was easier to just exist inside my own head. At least I've evolved now to floating on top of that tar in a little boat. Video games have always been different for me, though. Like movies... Like books or music for many, games have always provided me an avenue of some sort of what I always felt was escapism. But it wasn't just an escape. Games gave me access to communities, to topics of conversation, icebreakers, creative ideas, thought processes. And to a young, shy introvert, that was a powerful tool. I was able to communicate and make friends through my understanding of games and the stories surrounding them. It wasn't until more recently examining the games I enjoy that I discovered more about how the games I played growing up helped me through difficult times and continue to do so today. There were always specific types of games I enjoyed playing. I'd, uh, I'd often sit in school and think about the story of the game I was currently making my way through, maybe play pretend at recess and act it out and share my enthusiasm with my friends at the time, trying to make and create new stories out of the lore that we were discovering. Regardless of the burnout and the slumps I often would get into year-round, it always helped to have a story I was progressing through when I got home. They would spark my imagination and make me feel like there was a means to an end and that through the stories, a difference was being made. For reasons beyond my comprehension at the time, these stories, these characters, 
we're in a sense giving wind to my dark sails. This leads me to the topic of one of my favorite games of all time. The first game I have a memory of playing, Chrono Trigger. For many evenings, afternoons, and for years spread out, Chrono Trigger was a game that brought me positive and uplifting thoughts, introduced me to new ways of thinking and inter interacting, invested me in characters and storytelling for the first time, as well as being an introduction to many things specific to Japanese culture. After I fell in love with Chrono Trigger, I since have also fallen in love with the Japanese RPG, which, as I mentioned in a previous uh, episode, it does things quite differently by design than many stories and games that we come to know here in the West that operate more on the mechanics of, like, Dungeons and Dragons. Revisiting Chrono Trigger recently has also made me realize that playing it and playing games in my struggling times may have not been about escaping at all. It's more likely that it was about something deeper that I never saw on the surface. Like I previously mentioned, Chrono Trigger is the first game I remember playing with a controller in my hands. I remember a lot of games from my early introduction to the medium. I played some Super Metroid, along with a lot of games on the Super Nintendo and the original PlayStation, but I watched more often than I played. I watched a lot of my siblings make their way through the castles of Super Mario World, and the silly world of Earthbound, but Chrono Trigger was the first game I remember running around in and wanting to inhabit as the characters before I could read the words on the screen. This was a world that... I think was just inviting to me, that I wanted to explore. It captured my imagination, and it never let go. And I've continued to play Chrono Trigger as the years have gone on. From my bumbling around as a youth, not knowing where to go, and not being able to read the dialogue, to keeping separate save files with my sister after school, as we swap stories of how far we progressed at different times, to my time struggling through unemployment and being able to go through the game like an old book I've read a thousand times under a warm blanket. Chrono Trigger has continued to inspire me, to make me contemplate characters and stories, to make me think about the world and how decisions affect people and places, and how terrible and great things are really only temporary, even though their impact may last much longer. Let's travel back to 1994. The so-dubbed console war was in full swing with Nintendo and Sega fighting over the living room, and every kid fighting on the playground over the amount of bits that their home console had, or whether or not they had blast processing. In these days, kids got all their information from Nintendo Power, EGM, or their trusty pals on the recess big toys. Whatever console you had, these were the heydays of the 16-bit era, double the graphics, double the colors of what had come before on consoles. Sega burst onto the scene in 89, and Nintendo in 91, so by 1994, wherever you were playing games, you were in for some of the best times around. One of the biggest companies that gained a precedence in this era was called Squaresoft, which up to the 16-bit era actually hadn't been doing so well. On the Nintendo Entertainment System, or just the NES, which was Nintendo's console ranging from between 1983 and 1991, Squaresoft had been founded, and during this period were running into financial issues. Starting in late 1985 and going until 87, Squaresoft had been attempting to stay afloat in the games industry after previously being a powerline construction company, but had not sold many successful titles. While the fledgling studio did have some financial success in things like Rad Racer and 3D World Runner, 
other titles like King's Night and a game inspired by the movie Aliens didn't see the success they had hoped for. Because of this, in 1987, just two years after starting in the games industry, Squaresoft was looking down the pit of bankruptcy. In their pockets, they had the funds for one more project, and a team was put together. One, Hironobu Sakaguchi, among them to direct, Nobuo Uematsu to compose music, and Yoshitaka Amano to do the art design. Sakaguchi-san, when presenting The Last Harada Square, stated, I don't think I have what it takes to make a good action game. I think I'd be better at telling a story. The team dubbed the title Final Fantasy, expecting it to be the final game before the company would shut down, and borrowed mechanics from the success of Enix's own Dragon Quest franchise, which was Dragon Warrior in the States, as well as taking a lot of creative liberties from the game's storytelling and mechanics. Without going into too much detail, Final Fantasy was a financial and creative success, saved the company from bankruptcy, and started a new age for the studio as well as the creators on the project. Today, Final Fantasy is a juggernaut franchise that most recently put out its 15th installment, and has sold over 140 million units worldwide and grossed over $20 billion. It has become one of the most successful RPG franchises of all time. Sakaguchi, Amano, Uematsu are all regarded as some of the most innovative and talented people in the industry, and Square, without a doubt, is doing fine and nowhere in sight of that bankruptcy that had once threatened the studio. With the success of the original Final Fantasy, a seed for a new age of RPGs, innovation, and game quality was planted, and the sproutling of that seed was starting to pop out in the 16-bit era, the era of Nintendo's second home console, the Super Nintendo, and Sega's Genesis, that ranged from 1990 until around 1995-6. In America, we got Final Fantasy II, which was Final Fantasy IV in Japan, Secret of Mana, Breath of Fire, Final Fantasy III, which was Final Fantasy VI in Japan, and all of these are regarded as some of the top-of-the-line RPGs. Final Fantasy VI is up there with my favorites of all time, and I hopefully can get to that later on. Regardless, in this age, Squaresoft was making a name for themselves, and were well regarded for making quality and innovative role-playing games unlike anything else on the market. In 1993, Hironobu Sakaguchi, the creator of Final Fantasy, teamed up with Yuji Horii, the writer of the renowned Dragon Quest, the series which originally inspired Final Fantasy. These two developers also teamed up with Akira Toriyama, creator and artist of the show and manga called Dragon Ball. The three started tossing around ideas for a potential entry in the series called Saiken Densetsu, which, as we know in the States, is the Mana series. The game was going to be time travel themed, and the team wanted it to be released on the brand new Super Famicom disk drive. Squaresoft heads eventually decided against the disk implementation though, and instead opted to put it on a standard Super Nintendo cartridge. In retrospect, this worked out for the better, because the company who was going to be making the Famicom disk drive for Nintendo, Sony, instead decided to use that developed hardware to make their own platform against the knowledge and their initial agreement with Nintendo. We know that hardware as the Sony PlayStation, and that's another story. Once development for Squaresoft's game switched from disc to cartridge, the game was officially called Chrono Trigger. Chrono Trigger was meant to approximate a mix between the art and graphics from the Mana series, as it was originally developed for the franchise, and Toriyama's style from Dragon Ball. The crew also aimed to incorporate a character feel and humor similar to Toriyama's show as well. To make it feel different from something like Final Fantasy, random battles were abandoned, and instead most of the monsters would be visible in the field already. 
This would give the game a more free and uninterrupted feeling when going through environments, more like the Mana series, which was more of an action game than an RPG. Yasunori Mitsuda also joined the project. Originally unhappy with his job as a sound programmer, Mitsuda-san threatened to quit if he wasn't able to compose music. Chrono Trigger being a small project at the time was what he was put on. Mitsuda-san put everything that he had into the music of the game, sometimes sleeping on his office floor so he could write down songs and ideas as soon as they came to him, inspired by his dreams. He also wanted to make each track last at least two minutes before they started looping. Video game tracks at the time were typically only one minute, so this was an exceptional feat to take on. While deep in development, a hard drive crash lost Mitsuda around 40% of the soundtrack's progress, and in attempting to recover it, rewriting the pieces, he contracted stomach ulcers. Famed Final Fantasy composer Nobuo Uematsu and a new composer, Noriko Matsueda, stepped in unasked in Mitsuda's absence to help out their colleague. Uematsu wrote 10 pieces for the score, Matsueda wrote one. All of these disparate pieces from developers with innovative and genre-changing ideas came together to make what is not only regarded to many as one of the best RPGs of all time, but also widely considered one of the best games of all time. Chrono Trigger is featured on many sites' top 100 lists near the top, such as IGN, where it has never dipped below the 10th slot. It was recently inducted into the Easy Allies Hall of Greats, a title held for the greatest of gaming achievements. It has been released on many platforms over the years, capturing the hearts of players young and old, whether it was on the Super Nintendo in 94, the PlayStation years later, the Nintendo DS, or even mobile phones, and most recently, the PC. It sold a combined total of around 4 million copies. Mitsuda-san's soundtrack alone is widely recognized as one of the crowning achievements of the hardware generation, and I distinctly remember it capturing my imagination and heart making me turn the game on just to listen to certain tracks, and on multiple occasions making me cry as a child. Chrono Trigger has a lot of acclaim from a lot of outlets, but what is this game that brought so many people together and has inspired so many for so many years? Chrono Trigger is a game about time travel, humanity, and their consequence, and the impact we have on the smallest things around us. We start the game in the year 1000, where the Kingdom of Guardia is celebrating its millennium with a festival. It's a kingdom happy, at peace with a good ruler, and content people. We start the game as Chrono, or any other name that you'd like to give the protagonist. A silent youth who wakes up at home in bed and just wants nothing more than to go to the millennial fair that everyone is all around has been prepping and excited for. Upon going to the fair and participating in the myriad of activities and games the townspeople are taking part in, Chrono bumps into a cute girl who, after introducing herself as Marl, decides to join Chrono for the festivities. The two go to see Luca, Chrono's genius inventor friend, show off her new invention, the telepod, which is said to make one disappear here and reappear there. Your cute date Marl decides to try it out but after the telepod reacts strangely to the amulet around her neck, she disappears. Not on the other pod, she's disappeared altogether. Being the brave protagonist, you grab the amulet and go in after her to a rescue. Unbeknownst to you, this portal is a portal between two points in time and takes you to the Middle Ages, 400 years in your own past. Also unbeknownst to you is that this girl who was shadowing you while you were hanging out at the fair was actually Princess Nadia, the princess of your kingdom in your present. Now, after being teleported and trapped in the past, she's been kidnapped. Well, not kidnapped per se, 
she looks like her ancestor, Queen Lean, who has unfortunately historically been kidnapped at the same time period. Marl, aka Princess Nadia, has been mistaken for her. Consequently, this means that Marl, aka Princess Nadia, is mistaken for her kidnapped ancestor, and the kidnapped queen is never found in the past because the search for her is called off. This then causes Marl to cease to exist when you find her Back to the Future style, because the kidnapped queen is killed by her kidnappers, and Marl's never born in the first place. So after finishing the quest and saving the real queen in the past, getting Marl back from the nether of non-existence, going back to your original time period, and walking her safely back to the castle, the king is still convinced that you kidnapped the princess, and so Chrono is then sentenced to death. With the help of your friend Luca, and the princess Marl, who's now just rebelling and escaping with you, Chrono and your friends escape, ending up time-traveling by accident to their future, a post-apocalypse in the year 2300. They find here that a beast called Lavos has destroyed humanity and caused calamity and decay to the planet. Discovering that you and your group are the only ones with the capability of traveling through these time gates to different eras, it's decided that it is your party's responsibility to prevent Lavos from destroying your world by journeying through different time periods, finding where it came from, and changing history before Lavos can end it. On the quest, your party will meet a spunky cave girl named Ayla from the prehistoric era, a man cursed into becoming an anthropomorphic frog from the Middle Ages who calls himself Frog, a kind-hearted robot from the post-apocalypse Luca affectionately names Robo, and if you're lucky, even a dark magician with an unknown past named Magus, who was once your enemy. The game has you then running through different time eras to investigate or fix problems in a quest to ultimately and eventually defeat Lavos once and for all. In the process, along the way, you help a lot of different people with their individual problems. This then gives you a trail of breadcrumb clues about where to go next in the story. These tasks often involve going through dungeon-like areas, fighting monsters with spells and abilities you've learned and accumulated along the way, to help the different people of different ages with conflicts and problems that may impact the future or the current time. For instance, one of the mainline quests has you helping Frog regain his courage to take down the dark wizard Magus and get redemption for a fallen friend. To do that, you'll need to take his broken, legendary sword, the Masamune, to the future to get it repaired by a master swordsmith. But the materials the swordsmith needs for repairs only exist in the prehistoric era, so you'll need to go there and help out the locals in order to get the ore. This, in a way, is a conjoining of three separate stories. And while it sounds like it could be a menial fetch quest to get this, to get that, to do what you want to do in the first place, uh, these tasks are always elevated by the premise of the quest you're on and the personality of how things come together. The story is never presented through gates or roadblocks, but instead always feel like carrots on several sticks. They always flow into each other, and will always give you more hints on the world, the past, the future, how Lavos came to be, or how the world's destruction has impacted what you are familiar with. The plot never comes to a halt, it instead brisks by at an extremely satisfying rate, like a good steak with all meat, no fat. We care about every story, not because we need to get back to where we started, but from a genuine desire to help and assist those in need. Part of the way Chrono Trigger sets itself apart isn't in its visuals or story, though we will come back to that, 
but in the way that it handles combat. In most RPGs of this time, you would have what are called random encounters. This means you would walk through an area, and when you get into a battle, the screen flashes or contorts, and you're taken to a separate battle screen. Chrono Trigger doesn't have random encounters, and it doesn't have a battle screen. Pretty much every enemy in the game exists in the space that you're running around in. You may even see them running around the area and interacting with each other. Sometimes you still won't see them and they'll just jump out of a bush or from behind some cover. Regardless of where these enemies are, it seamlessly makes the world's locations feel inhabited and also naturally makes battles just make more sense. If I want to go through that door, I'll need to fight these guys guarding it. Uh-oh, these guys ambushed us while I was trying to climb this ladder. Better sneak slowly through here so I can avoid these enemies that are darting around. This not only feels more natural, it feels more fair. Uh, the game contextualizes where all the fights come from, and in some instances this just means that if you're careful and tactful, you can avoid combat entirely. This is in contrast to those other games of the time I mentioned earlier, which all interrupted the flow of progress through an area to put you into a combat screen. Random encounters are a challenge, but sometimes get annoying and frustrating because you can never see when combat is going to happen. Sometimes it can be a step, sometimes it can be longer. It's all based on a random number that you can't see. However, in Chrono Trigger, this is never an issue, and in addition to making sense and feeling more fair, it makes each area feel alive and inhabited, showing the player the strings and allowing them to organically make decisions of whether or not to fight, or to communicate to the player where enemies come from, and that was unheard of in this type of game. And in many cases, it's still not done in the same way with modern iterations of the same genre. Another thing that's really unique to Chrono Trigger is its take on combat itself. Final Fantasy popularized a combat system known as the ATB system, which stands for the Active Time Battle System. Uh, when this was first introduced in Final Fantasy IV, the ATB system shook up the RPG combat by having the battle constantly marching forward. So, going back in time further, in previous iterations of RPG combat before then, in games like Dragon Quest and the first three core Final Fantasy games, the system was used that involved taking turns. So you'd pick your attack for each of your party members one at a time, and then based on everyone's speed stat, everyone on each side took turns attacking in that order. The ATB system is similar, but battles never stop for you to make your decisions one at a time. On the bottom of the screen... Uh, you have bars that show all of your battle choices, with items, magic, attacking, and a time gauge fills up for each of your party members, and when it's filled up, they're allowed to have their turn. The gauges don't stop when you're making a decision for your battle tactic, and it doesn't stop for the enemy either. If you're not really quick and you're planning on your feet, the enemy will just keep attacking as their time goes up as well. So gone is one at a time taking your turn, and then the enemy taking their turn, uh, this encourages you to know your party members well, so you can devise plans according to the situation that is playing out, and especially whose turn is coming up. Back to Chrono Trigger, Chrono Trigger continues to evolve this system even further by allowing your party members to work together. Everyone on your team has moves called Tex, which could be any special move from healing to magic to a special attack, and you can use these on their own, but characters will also learn what are called double techs. And with double techs, where if you wait for two characters who learn to move together to both have their turns ready, you can have them do a unique cooperative move at the same time. So, for an example, you could have Luca and Chrono do a double attack, 
where Luca uses her fire magic, and then Crona picks up the fire magic with his sword and attacks an enemy, and then they do a super powerful attack together. Um, so this system means that depending on who you have in your party of three, you'll have dozens of unique attacks for that given party, because different people can only use certain combo attacks with specific party members. Adding triple tech moves, where you'll need three specific party members to be on your team to act at the same time to pull off a devastatingly powerful attack, you have a lot of options for party combinations and strategy that you otherwise wouldn't have to think about. Every party has advantages and disadvantages, and you constantly need to either consider who to take along, or learn to make do with who the plot gives you at a given moment. The battle is always dynamically moving, and you constantly need to be on your toes coming up with different strategies on the fly. Uh, like, do you take a turn and attack now with one person? Do you wait and risk the enemy attacking you so you can use a double tech? This creates a great risk versus reward element, because there's always the risk that if you wait too long in your strategizing, or if you get greedy wanting to do a double or triple tech move at the wrong time, the enemy will get the upper hand. However, waiting could also prove more opportune and fruitful for your own victory if you strike a powerful move at the correct time. This system is great at keeping you on your toes, but if the stress of the time moving is too much for you, you can always turn that active battle system to wait, where enemies won't attack until you've made up your mind on a tactical decision for a character. Ain't that nifty? Segwaying back to the design of battle locations and dungeons, because monsters actually inhabit the areas you visit, it makes these dangerous dungeon-like areas feel inhabited by actual creatures. An interesting storytelling device is derived from this as well. In any RPG, when roaming around a town, village, castle, etc., it's incredibly common to see non-playable characters walking around. You can talk to them, they sometimes have uh, established jobs and paths that they walk around every day. They, in essence, live in a place. Villagers live in houses and own stores for you to shop at. They'll speculate and give clues about the world around them that can help you on your journey. From the perspective of world building, it's easy and straightforward to comprehend. You walk into a store, and the shopkeeper is there. Maybe their spouse walks around, and you can talk to them. This makes environments feel lived in, alive, and inhabited. Doing the same thing for dungeons, though, creates a really interesting mirror effect. When this is done, the rest of the places around the world suddenly feel inhabited as well, but by dangerous monsters. There typically aren't townspeople in these areas, and it makes more sense when you see dangerous baddies roaming around. Monsters become less fodder and become more the townspeople of the dangerous places that we don't want to interact with. We don't see townspeople in these areas because it's so dangerous. Monsters live there. When we see humans in monster-infested areas, there's typically a very specific reason. After all, why would ordinary townsfolk go into these dangerous places unaccompanied? These monsters, just like townsfolk, have their own set paths. They have places that they live in these places, so dangerous to humans, and it just fleshes out the world in general. The towns feel more human, more safe, and the forests and mountains suddenly feel more sinister. This means... It's also meaningful from a storytelling perspective to see how people interact with monsters throughout the story and how they react to being in monster-infested areas. Furthermore, it fleshes out the rest of the world in other interesting ways when we consider that monsters aren't just roaming baddies, they're not just fodder for you to slay, but instead speak the common tongue and live in their own private areas away from the prying eyes of humankind. 
it brings up a lot of interesting questions and philosophical thoughts about how we treat those different that we perceive as dangerous and how that can change when a small historical event is altered and looked at differently. The world is alive. We see its beating heart in all manner of places and witness the heartstrings move and connect in ways that we don't expect. And as the story progresses, the world and its people change with your help. Change is the most important word there, because the story itself is directly about altering small things for the greater good. From the perspectives of the main characters, we're given the unique opportunity to not only alter history, but to view it from several different sets of eyes. The cast of protagonist characters are all emblematic of different time eras that you'll travel through. Ayla, a cavewoman from the prehistoric, Magus, a wizard from the Dark Ages of Magic, Frog from the Medieval, Chrono, Marl, and Luca from the Age of Peace, and finally Robo from the Post-Apocalypse. These characters represent every age of the world's history, but also hold something unique, progressive, or strongly different about themselves compared to where they originate. For instance, in the future, the world is in ruins. There are no plants that grow anymore, and hardly any human life exists. All that is left is slowly dying. Mutants and robots are some that are surviving, and they are largely violent and destructive. Robo is the character that is found in this time, and is revived by Luca. She, being the intelligent inventor, takes pity on it, as originally it, like the other machines, was built for destruction. Machines aren't capable of evil, she tells everyone. Humans make them that way. Robo, then upon being repaired and rebuilt by Luca, becomes a positive, intelligent projection of the party's positive spirit and their uplifting philosophy for saving humanity, rather than its originally pre-programmed destructive nature. Robo becomes a character that comes out of an age of and is built intentionally for destruction. He overcomes his creative purpose becoming the opposite, a character that can and does help build and create rather than destroy. Every character has quirks like this, and it makes the cast shine as a beacon for change, even when the world is set on values and ideals so polarly opposing in each unique time era. Despite this being a story surrounding itself with the nature and repercussions of time travel, Ray Bradbury and A Sound of Thunder cannot be seen here. We don't typically encounter complicated and layered repercussions surrounding time travel in Chrono Trigger. The butterfly effect, so to speak, is a non-issue. As Chris Kohler of Kotaku put it in his 2018 reflection on the game, Chrono Trigger in no way attempts to reckon with the concept of the butterfly effect, the idea that the tiniest of changes could have massive ripple effects that alter the entire face of the world, change one thing in the past, and exactly one thing changes about the future. Neat and tidy. That was Chris Kohler, 2018, in his article, A Reflection on Chrono Trigger. This um, neat and tidy nature that he talks about serves the puzzles in a positive way. It gives you a clear indications on what will and will not have impacts on the story and the world in general. We don't have to worry about stepping on a butterfly or killing the wrong baddie and having the world turn into a dystopia. Our focus instead is on the smaller issues to attempt to solve. 
These puzzles range in a lot of different directions, from the aforementioned fixing frogs mass immune, to helping a young woman plant a forest that will take hundreds of years, to helping a selfish and greedy family in the present learn compassion by sharing food with their starving relatives hundreds of years before. They're all small slices of piecing together a better world today, or more precisely, yesterday, to make a better tomorrow. Sometimes these changes aren't as intentional as solving a puzzle, though, and throughout the course of the adventure, you'll also see changes that stem from your actions that are less impactful to the plot, even if they alter things you notice around the world throughout the journey. At the beginning of the game, for instance, we learn that the Dark Lord Magus summoned Lavos to the world in the medieval ages, and monsters in your present worship and idolize him because of it. After defeating him in an attempt to reverse that historical event, though, we learn that he wasn't the cause of Lavos. The monsters worship Magus because they believed him to have summoned Lavos for their aid in the war after happening in that period. And upon returning to the present with Magus defeated, the monsters no longer worship him. Instead, they live more harmoniously with the people. The symbol of their hatred and their bloodlust of humanity has been removed, and so, therefore, so is their feelings thereof. It's an example of how history isn't just determined by the victors, but also by the losers. And when we change a small perspective somewhere along the lines, it can make a drastic difference for others in ways we didn't expect. So you may be asking yourself at this point then, is this just a typical RPG with some time travel added in? And I can't argue that sentiment. A lot of RPG archetypal storytelling is present here. It's true that we are going after a big bad to try and save the world with a bunch of young protagonists, which truthfully is typical theming for the Japanese RPG, or the shonen genre in general, which is a Japanese manga subgenre that is primarily aimed at teens and boys. In these stories, we always expect a youthful protagonist to end up with the world on their shoulders and have the big bad guy at the end we need to conquer as a milestone. Those themes are all there. Chrono Trigger has the story you expect, but it also has the story that you don't, and it's tucked away between the characters and between how they interact. Chrono Trigger gets surprisingly deep, especially given that it came out 25 years ago when the genre was still growing through its adolescence. Chrono Trigger tackles heavy subject matter when you least expect it. Time and time again, we realize that the big bads that we're going after may not be as bad as we thought, and we're all influenced by a will to survive in some way. There are certainly those villainous villains in the game as well that you just love to hate all the way to the end, but in the final moments of others we see glimmers of their hope and what drove them to oppose the protagonists. Small actions that rippled out and turn them on the path of malice. And in these moments, we're able to understand these characters, not judge them. They were all used, all hoping to bring a better tomorrow for those close to them, acting out of fear or desperation, not unlike the protagonists. And we're able to glimpse a small piece of ourselves and our own party of characters in these moments. Game of Thrones, though, this is not. We are rarely left to wonder if... What we're doing as the main characters is the correct path, or if there's any moral injustice to it. While this is still a game primarily aimed at kids, it's refreshing to see reflections on villains, seeing where they stem, and understanding that their roots may not be constructed of pure malice, like we were led to think. 
like the protagonists, the villains are often elevated by being more than what we believe the sums of their parts to be. To see this, we need to look no further than Magus again, a character we believe to be the greatest evil, who turns out to be following the wrong people, who is angry and just wants revenge, and who eventually may even join the party as a protagonist himself. While he may not be the most righteous character, Magus acts out of a sense of personal justice, by any means necessary for a past injustice we only learn about as we expound on his story. The best villains could be protagonists themselves in fiction, and the best main characters make mistakes. We empathize with a good villain, and we're able to empathize with most characters, villain or no, in Chrono Trigger. Chrono Trigger is not the peak of philosophical thought experiments, nor does it strive to be. However, because of its simplicity, it makes the moments when it does challenge your thinking shine all the more. In a favorite scene of mine, the party all sit around a campfire after Robo has helped a young woman revive a forest. Robo has tirelessly worked several human lifetimes to create it, beginning its growth with a woman who will never see the final product. However, the rest of the party simply traveled forward in time to see the results in seconds. Everyone sits around a campfire reminiscing, and they contemplate the nature of the gates which they use to travel from point to point in time. Robo, who has had a lot of time to think over the 400 years he's had apart from the party, ponders about the events that have led up to that point. He contemplates how the gates are all connected, and that they're all at different pivotal points in the world's history. Perhaps, he wonders, could these points be the planet in its own death, having its life flash before itself one more time? Could memory, he wonders further, be a form of time travel unto itself? We all have moments we return to, again and again, from our own personal history, and contemplate the difference a single alternate action would have caused on that moment and everything afterward. At this point, after the campfire scene, Luca is taken through a special red time gate by herself, and is given an opportunity to relive a point from her own past, a moment crucial to what made her become who she is. As the player enters the scene, we take control of Luca and read a diary entry dated from 10 years in the past. Written by Luca, it reads, Dad promised to go hiking with me, but blew me off again. Due to this work. I hate science. I loathe it. And after walking into the living room, we meet her mother, who's tidying up. But in an accident, she gets stuck to a conveyor belt on one of Luca's father's inventions. She screams for your help. As the machine slowly sucks her mother closer and closer to its rotating core, you're given control back. There's a note on the floor of a different room that is from Luca's father that explains the shutdown password for that machine is his lovely wife's name. If you were paying attention, it's Lara. But upon going to the computer to input the password, you realize that you, the player, have no idea how to do it once control is given to you, just like Luca at this point in her own life has no idea how to operate machinery. Most likely, you'll fail to input the password, and you'll watch as Luca's mother gets sucked into the machine. The screen goes black, and we hear a deafening scream. Luca's mother from this point on loses her ability to walk. This is the memory Luca forever lives over and over again. And back in her room, we see a new message that reads, I feel as though I've learned something. I'll study machines now. There will be no more accidents around here. Indicating the beginning of her journey to science and knowledge, the transitional point in her character story that brought her to who we recognize. She genuinely wants to use machines for good and to help after seeing firsthand how they can harm. There are actually two outcomes to this scene, though. If the player is able to enter the password in time and stop the machine, 
Luca saves her mother, and going back to the present, we get to witness her walking again. In a way, this scene is emblematic not just of why Chrono Trigger is special, but also why its genre stands on the test of time, and why it holds such a special place in my heart as well. The genre of RPG Chrono Trigger belongs to typically revolves around world-ending conflict, with young people at the story's center fighting to stop or prevent calamity. Oftentimes, they are given special powers, they can perform magic or control fantastical beasts. They may be tasked with taking down supernatural entities or naysaying malicious gods. But at the center of those larger-than-life stories are always characters striving to make a difference and working to positively change lives and influence the world around them for the better. I could go on about Chrono Trigger's incredible music, how it's a different map for every single time era you travel to that adapts to different story events, or how its refined combat may be the best of the generation of hardware. At its heart, though, Chrono Trigger stands the test of time because it is some of the best the genre has to offer, being a story about bringing about change and making a positive impact. Not just on a universal level, but on a personal one as well. We see these characters growing up, maturing, and making often sacrificial or difficult personal decisions from dilemmas, and learning to be the bigger person in conflicts. We want to save Luca's mother, not to save the world, but to help a person. And that that's what resounds about these games. The small, personal, often intimate stories we follow in Chrono Trigger, in Final Fantasy VI, in Persona V, are the ones that stick with us more than the grand, epic, overarching conflict about good versus evil. Because laced in between the lines of saving the world are stories about growth, stories about being the bigger person, about apology and forgiveness, about love and personal sacrifice. When the credits roll on many of Chrono Trigger's final acts, because the game has 13 endings to see, we often get to see the world at peace again. But what sticks with you more are seeing the people you've come to know, different than they were at the beginning, and feeling like you had a personal hand in guiding them and accomplishing that. In the best of these sorts of stories, it's not about the amount of cataclysmic atrocities that get prevented, but about the amount of personal growth we get to see in the protagonists from overcoming societal, group, or private conscionable hurdles for what is ultimately the greater good beyond themselves, for the betterment of those around them. My personal favorite games of this genre follow stories that revolve around these themes in their own special way. Persona 5 has resonant stories about deep-seated societal hierarchical injustice, and youths pledging to not be quiet about it anymore. Final Fantasy VI is about enduring pain as an individual, and small sacrifices we make often surrounding that personal pain that create an enormous difference for those around us, which we often stay quiet about, and the need for those closest to us to pick us up from those secret pits. And Chrono Trigger is about how the small things that we do both directly and indirectly impact those around us, and how a desire to change things for the better can impact our surroundings beyond our expectations. While most, if not all, RPGs of the genre are about enacting a change, Chrono Trigger specifically stands out because of how it presents these story elements and its core ideology. It's about making a change and seeing how that change can affect the world, and firsthand watching your and others' great and small impacts on the world, how those choices and decisions can make a tremendous difference for those you may never meet and the world you'll never live in, the ripple effect of good and bad, how much the world can transform even when you act passively, and seeing the exponential change that can happen when we realize that and shift our lives to try to act and help those around us actively but also how that helps us grow as well. 
There are 13 ways that the story of Chrono Trigger can end. Minus the one where the protagonists lose and bring about world-ending cataclysm, these endings all bring a sense of clarity, positivity, and are extremely uplifting. We get to see the changes that we helped bring about. In one, we get to travel through time one more time to see the characters that we have become attached to, their stories resolved and peaceful, all having gone through a full plot arc that we personally invested ourselves in and took part in accomplishing. In another, we lose that ability to travel through time, and after saying goodbye to our friends, the two main love interests fly in a balloon high above the world, and we as the audience look down on it with a conclusive feeling of peace for a future that is now yet to be determined. There's hope here. After seeing so many ways that things can turn out for the worse, we feel that there's room to look forward with positivity, with aspirations, our heads held high, and hope for tomorrow. We don't need time travel to change tomorrow, we just need our want for good, and for peace. Chrono Trigger came out 25 years ago, as of March 11th, and in that time, it kickstarted the careers of many industry veterans who went on to become some of the biggest names in the industry, provided they weren't already. Chrono Trigger garnered a sequel, Chrono Cross, that, though well-received, definitely has a mixed reception among fans. But people continue to play Chrono Trigger passionately to this day. It's received perfect scores from many outlets, and remains a title that is cherished and held close. It's inspired creators for over two decades, with countless games taking influence from its ideas and creativity. But what keeps bringing people back to Chrono Trigger all these years later? How and why is this little gem of the past still sparkling in a way that attracts people to it? I can't speak for everyone. I can only speak from my own personal opinion and my own experiences. And even those, I feel like I can only scratch the surface. I've dealt with depression my whole life. A lot of things give me anxiety. And a lot of the time, the world does seem like it's all going to hell. The latter doesn't help with the former two. And with all that combined, trying to put something positive out to help myself and others can be a challenge. I'm not the perfect beacon of positivity because I'm not a perfect person. But Chrono Trigger is a game that throughout my life has made all of those things fade away just a bit. And I think that's because at the end of the day, when the credits roll, when we get to see the characters and the world we've helped, it really comes down to a feeling. It's going to be okay. Chrono Trigger deals with themes of loss and world-ending destruction. It deals with bad people who break systems and people. But at the end of the day, we can look back on those bad times and look forward with more optimism than pessimism and feel like things will be alright. Chrono Trigger certainly isn't the only game to help with this. I've mentioned others previously. I think that these sorts of RPGs really help me though because of that influence. Because it's about the people you care about wanting to enact a change, and that desire manifesting in good outcomes. Bad will happen, but with a positive influence, with good intentions, with a want for a better tomorrow, it will come. Someday. If those characters can grow and change, there's a feeling like we can too. So no, Chrono Trigger doesn't cure my depression. I didn't want to make it appear that it did. Really, there isn't a cure for mental health issues other than time and a personal understanding of yourself. I can't speak for everyone. I have my own boat in a viscous black tar that sometimes has no wind for weeks, for months, and sometimes longer than that. 
Other people have other issues, unique to themselves. But games can help. Games like Chrono Trigger have helped give my sales a little bit of wind at times when I needed it most, and can help make me feel inspired, or just generally, that things can work out for the better. It's helped me think about other perspectives and ways of thinking, about how we can impact each other. And it's continued to make me feel like, if we really want to, we can grow, we can change, and make a difference. And that small difference can help bring that tomorrow we really want. Like watching the world from atop a balloon after fighting so long to protect it, things will be okay. Since I was a kid, I've had a negative association with the concept of escapism. Escapism isn't inherently a bad thing. We have books, we have movies, and we have music that all provide a certain type and amount of this, allowing us to travel to specific creative worlds and see other people's lives play out or hear thoughtful and creative perspectives and ideas. At dark times in my life, I remember waking up early, eagerly dressing up in costume to see the new episode of Game of Thrones with my friends. It was a moment once a week when, regardless of political turmoil, poor jobs, local conflict, financial instability, we could all turn the lights off, turn our phones off, and watch characters we care about battle in another world similar but very different to our own. And for a moment, we could only care about those characters in that world. For a moment, everything else would fade into the background. We are able to, with this type of escapism, learn about characters, perspectives, and be a fly on a wall in another reality similar to our own. But I've always felt that from an outsider's perspective, those positive aspects are often lost on games. Like escaping into a game is similar to being lost inside a cyberpunk virtual reality goggles of an Isaac Asimov or an Orwellian dystopia of non-control where a book is a much more safe and acceptable way to digest and consider information. That may just be the time that I've grown up in. Games are a relatively young medium compared to the former mentioned entertainment industries and output models, and I have to admit that games do share a similar sense of that escapism with its counterparts. We hear grand stories, meet bold, wonderful characters, and get to experience fantastical and imaginative worlds different than our own. However, I think the thing that I always gravitated towards with games wasn't the escape, it was the influence. And it was the growth we personally feel with the characters themselves. Games have a unique way of not only allowing us to see characters, but to control those characters. We don't just look at worlds, we're able to help shape them. And we don't watch worlds get saved, we save them ourselves. And that feeling of personal influence and personal growth throughout has been a positive aspect in my life since I was young, since I would shut my brain off from stress and anxiety, since I wouldn't be able to cope with the world because I was hopelessly and lethargically depressed, since I was stuck in that black tar of silent hopelessness to being on a boat with no sails and no winds. Chrono Trigger is just one game that made me feel like I can change things. I can change myself. I can do cool, amazing, fantastic things, just like the characters I was helping to save the world. But games as a medium can help regardless. Not as a tool for escape as I feel they're broadly and somewhat negatively associated, but with personal influence. We can help Mario jump to every platform and save the day from a giant turtle. We can help Link solve every puzzle in a dark dungeon and use our brains and use tools we've accumulated to fight monsters to save the world. We can strategize a team of Pokemon against our opponents, 
or fit Tetris blocks in just the right spot, or help Solid Snake sneak through a military compound unseen. And when we take part in that, when we see the credits roll, sometimes it feels like maybe tomorrow won't be so bad. Because if we can help save the world, if we can be on our own balloon flying above everything that we've tried so hard to help out, how hard can it be to do it again, a little at a time, for others, for the world, for ourselves? On top of that, talking about things is also okay. We all have different things that we struggle with in life. Personally, I have been trying to be more open about my personal mental health struggles, but also, I wanted to be more open about my struggles with imposter syndrome and feeling that like the thoughts that I have aren't as valid as those coming from others. But we all have our own personal struggles. And the best way to have help is to talk about it. It's not always easy, but if you're struggling, try talking with someone close to you. I'm not exactly a qualified physician. I'm a dude who has feelings about video games. But one of the things that can help is talking, because realizing others are there for you is important, and having those people knowing you need them is important too. For me, games like Chrono Trigger are also a big help, maybe because it gives me that feeling of connection with those characters trying to make a difference together, and with their own lives, but also because of what I said before. Games can challenge you, they can inspire you, they can be a lot of different things, but they can also be healing. They can be a cause for personal growth. And in trying times such as those that we're in right now, sometimes it's good to sit back and know that at the end of the credits, it will all turn out fine. We just need to do our own little part in trying to make the world a better place. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. That has been a long time coming. I've been working on that episode for months. I've got a lot of episodes that I've been halfway through writing and I just feel like, you know, that that feeling of anxiety hits me and I'm like, maybe I shouldn't finish this episode. Maybe it's not good enough. I want to get over that. I want to start putting things out more regularly because I know that you want to see those episodes. Just like how I'm excited and proud of those episodes too. I, I really like the, the context of this episode and I felt like now was maybe the right time to finish it and put it out. And hopefully that can kickstart a lot of other episodes that I've been working on. Uh, but yeah, I wanted to be honest. I wanted to let everybody know that I've been struggling with mental health. But, uh, you know, talking about it is a good thing. And games can be a good thing. Uh, so I hope that you really like this episode. I hope that it gave you good vibes and good feelings. And I hope that my passion for one of my favorite games came through a little bit. Because it's a tough thing to talk about. One of your favorite things. Um, like, I I probably barely scratched the surface of, like, a lot of the things in that game. Like, somebody's gonna be like, yo, you forgot about this thing. And I'll be like, oh, man, you're right. I totally forgot about that thing. There's a lot in that game. That's a cool game. But I hope that everybody gets to play something that gives them good vibes in these times. And, you know, makes them feel positive and good. Uh, you know, just keeps your brain occupied. And I hope that this was, you know, worth the wait. It's been a while. Um, I'm a little rusty. I sound like I'm a little rusty. I don't know if this is, this episode is as uh, cadenced. Is that a word? Has some of my other stuff? Yeah. But we'll try and get another episode out soon. I'm not making any promises about length of time. But I do have other episodes in the work. Like, I haven't been doing nothing. I have a lot of episodes that I have, like, you know, half of an episode worth that I just need to, like, conclude and finish and get all my thoughts worked up for. If you would like to, you can reach out to me at 
happygamingpodcast at gmail.com. You can write me a little note, a little email, and say, hey, I, I like your episode. You should do, you should talk about this game. And I'll be like, cool. I don't have an Xbox, but I'll, I'll look into it. Uh, you can follow me at HG underscore podcast on Twitter if you'd like to tweet at me, if you'd like to see how liter- little I tweet. Um, you can go to my Patreon if you'd like to support the show. Don't feel obligated or like it's a necessity. I do this show in my free time. It is not my main source of income. But if you'd like to kick me a buck or two, you know, go to the go to patreon.com slash happygaming. You can find all of my stuff there, including a, uh, a video that I've worked on. Um, you can kick me a buck if you'd like to, you know, support the show financially. Anyways, long story short, play something new, play something that you love, play something positive, and keep your mind occupied. And until the next one, happy gaming, everyone. Good night.